Gospel of John chapter 4. The Gospel of John chapter 4. Welcome to week 10 of our journey through the Gospel of John. And it's getting better and better. And what we come to this morning is the longest recorded conversation between Jesus and another person in all the Gospels. And strangely enough, it happens between Jesus and a woman who was an outcast, a Samaritan woman who had been married five times and was now living with a man who was not her husband. When I think about this text and I think about uh, this woman, I was reminded of a story of a woman who in her life married four husbands in her lifetime. Her, the first husband she married was a banker. The second husband she married was a movie star. The third husband she married was a pastor. And the fourth husband that she married was a mortician, or for those that don't know, a funeral home director. And someone asked her about her choice in men and how they were varying in all kind of different professions. I mean, think about it. Banker, movie star, pastor, and mortician. And she responded by saying simply this. I married one for the money, two for the show, three to get ready, and four to go. And of course, uh, I cannot think of uh, this text that we come today without thinking about that terrible joke. Um, But here's what we know. We know that this woman was a Samaritan woman with quite a past. We're never even given her name. Some of the most powerful figures in the Bible are figures that we never learn their names. And what we're about to read about was it was a hot day in the or hot excuse me, it was in the middle of a hot day in Samaria when a troubled woman came to draw water, perhaps to avoid gossip, to avoid looks, to avoid having to talk to others. Most people would come to draw water early in the morning, later in the afternoon, but here she is in the middle of the day. And while she came to find a well of water, what she found instead was a well of grace. She found Jesus, which really what we know is that Jesus found her. We discover that a woman from the wrong place with a bad past was changed forever by an encounter with Jesus. And what we see here, what we're about to see is that Jesus wasn't concerned about appearances. His concern was for people, all people, And praise be to God, Jesus is concerned for hurting people, for searching people, for people with terrible past, for empty people. And that's good news for all of us because one of those things describes us, who we are. And the beautiful thing is that Jesus is willing to go anywhere to meet us. And when we come to know and experience his love for us, we come to understand how we must worship him. I think of the words of Pastor Tim Keller who said this, such powerful words. He says, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. We are known fully, and we are loved truly. 
So let us see the love of God on display through this divine appointment, through this divine encounter, revealing a divine love to a desperate person. If you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand. We honor God's word. We're just going to read verses 4 through 9 now, and then we're going to have to unpack a lot of verses in our time together. But beginning at verse 4, it says this, And he, meaning Jesus, had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Let's pray. Father, just today in this moment, we're quiet our hearts and minds to hear from you. Show us today that we are all, every single one of us, Lord, we are desperately in need of you to drink of your living water, maybe for the first time, or to continue again and again and again to drink from you. Just speak, O oh God, today to our thirsty souls. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. So John wants us to know that Jesus needed to go through Samaria because there was an outcast in Samaria that needed what he alone could give to her. And now here's what's interesting to me. You, you couldn't find two more polar opposite of people than the last two conversations that John gives us in John 3 with Nicodemus and then here in John 4 with this woman at the well. Let me give you a little contrast here. He was a Jew. She was a Samaritan. He was a Pharisee. She belonged to a rival religion. He was a politician. She had no status whatsoever. He was a scholar. She was uneducated. He was highly moral. She was highly immoral. He has a name, Nicodemus. She is nameless. He was a man. She was a woman. He came at night. She came at noon. Nicodemus came seeking Jesus. This woman came seeking water, but praise be to God, Jesus came seeking her. We've got Nicodemus who represents that no one is too high or mighty or lofty as to be above the need for Jesus. And then we have in this woman representing no one can sink so low as to not be noticed or wanted by Jesus. Beautiful in their contrast to each other. And what we see is a common ground because they both have the same need. They both need Jesus. And they both need what only Jesus can give. Just think about the reality of all the things that we try apart from Jesus and we take in trying to find fulfillment in and we're left wanting. We're left unfulfilled. This week I read that Mexico City, one of the largest cities in the world with 20 million people is, get this, is sinking. 
Every year, buildings and streets are sinking deeper into the earth in Mexico City. And some neighborhoods are sinking a foot a year. And do you know why? Because the people who live there are thirsty. 77% of the water the people rely on in Mexico City has to be extracted from aquifers which are below the city. So to quench their thirst, billions of gallons of water have to be pumped from underground every year as, as they drain it, of course, the city sinks. And much of the water has organic and chemical contaminations which can bring death-giving disease. And think about this. The, the whole world in which we live is one giant Mexico city. The more of the world's water we drink, the deeper we sink into despair, into discouragement, into disillusionment. The deeper we sink, the thirstier we get. The thirstier we get, the more we drink. The more we drink, the deeper we sink. And the vicious cycle continues again and again. And this woman has sunk deep into sin and she has almost completely gone under. And then think about the tension that we just read about. By this time, there has been animosity between the Samaritans and the Jews for over 700 years. Jews hated Samaritans. Samaritans hated the Jews. Jews traveling either north or south, even though it would be quicker to go through Samaria, they would always avoid Samaria, Samaria adding hours, adding miles, adding effort to their trip. So why all the animosity? Let me just give you a little background. In 722 B.C., the Assyrian Empire defeated Israel, the northern kingdom. And when Assyrians took nations, what they would do is they would remove the population base away from the land, leaving only the poorest of the poor from that nation. They would then take people from other defeated nations and bring them in. Well, these floods of new people came in to the poorest of poor in Israel. They basically intermarried. And what happened is these poorest of the poor Jews then took on the gods, the goddesses, all the worship of all these people who came into their land. It was a meshing of ideologies. It was basically a, a cult. And these people became known as Samaritans. Now fast forward 270 years. The Babylonians conquered Jerusalem. And 70 years after they conquered Jerusalem, some Jewish exiles returned to Judea to rebuild the temple because they wanted God to be worshipped in Jerusalem once again. In the midst of them trying to rebuild the temple, the Samaritans in, in Ezra 4 show up and say, we would love to help rebuild the temple. Well, basically, the Jews looked at the Samaritans and said, you are a bunch of godless idolaters who pro profess a false salvation, and we do not want your help at all. As you can imagine, the Samaritans were not happy about that. I mean, if you're called godless idolaters and we don't need your help, of course, you're going to be hurt, you're going to be mad, you're going to be angry. So what they did is they went and they started their own religion. And they basically started their own temple on their own mountain. They took the first five books of the Old Testament. They basically changed some of the wording to, to fit what they were doing. One Jewish historian said that the Samaritan temple looked almost just like the temple in Jerusalem. So you have Samaritan worship in Samaria. You have um, Jewish worship in Jerusalem. The 
competition, this hatred continued. For 300 years, Samaritans worshipped in this Samaritan temple until the Jews burned it to the ground. Hatred continues. When Jesus was a child, it is said that Samaritans basically came in and defiled the temple by taking bones and just spreading them all throughout the temple. Hatred upon hatred upon hatred. And in the midst of this ongoing hatred came amazing love in the person of Jesus Christ. So I want to lay before us this morning three truths. I could have chosen 12 truths today, to be honest. There are so many things I'm going to leave out today. And the reason I'm choosing to leave them out is, number one, we don't have time. But second of all, most of these things we're leaving out, we're going to come back to in our study through the Gospel of John. But the first thing I want us to, to, to kind of highlight today is this. There is water that quenches every thirst. There is water that quenches every thirst. It has been said that the average person can survive without water for three days. Now, I know most of us have heard seven days, which means the above average person can do that. We're the average ones, and after three days, we're done. So the average person can survive without water for three days. Aside from quenching thirst, water is essential in ways that I'm not aware of. And as I read this this week, it reminded me of my need for more water in my life. But water, it regulates our body temperature. It aids in digestion. It delivers oxygen throughout the body. It keeps our brains from brain fog. That could be my problem. It eliminates toxins and waste from our body and so much more. There's so many benefits. And in the verses that we just read or about to read, Jesus encounters this woman and he introduces her to not just the benefits of well water, but living water. Follow with me here. Look at verse 10. Let's pick up where we just left off. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, which means she doesn't know who he is. You would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Verse 11, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Think about this. Think about that question. Are you greater than Jacob? Imagine saying that to Jesus. Jesus probably could have said to her, greater than Jacob? My, my poor woman, have you not read the first book of the Bible? Have you not read about your father Jacob as you call him? How one night a mysterious person came to him and wrestled with him? And that unknown one said to Jacob, let me go for the day has broken. And Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. And Jacob was finally let go, but he limped for the rest of his life. Jesus might have said, do you remember that story? Well, I am the one that Jacob met in the darkness. And I overcame his stubborn will, so yes, I am greater than your father, Jacob. But if Jesus would have said that, this woman probably would have ran away from him thinking he was crazy. So instead, Jesus doesn't go that direction. He instead seeks to reach her heart and her conscience. In fact, look at verse 13. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. What does a thirsty person do to get rid of their thirst? It's not a trick question. They drink. 
That's what they do to get rid of their thirst. They drink. This woman had been drinking and drinking and drinking of every relationship and every hope that this world gave to her. She drank of these wells of pleasure and she came up empty again and again and again. And please hear this. We should all write this verse, verse 13, over every earthly pursuit, over every earthly relationship, over every materialistic desire that we are currently pursuing or will pursue. If we drink of what this world offers, we will be left thirsty again and again and again and again. It cannot satisfy us ever. And the sad story of humanity and the sad story of our own spiritual lives is that we make awful trades. We trade satisfaction for that which can't satisfy us. We trade refreshment for that which can't refresh us. And here is the picture that Jesus paints. Every man and woman is in a desperate life and death situation. Spiritually, we're like travelers lost in the desert of sin and death. And we need help. And our only help and hope in that desert is water. And we turn to so many offers of satisfaction. And sometimes it seems like we found something to quench our thirst. To meet our needs, but before long we realize that what we thought was a solution isn't the solution. So we start looking again in our desperate need to find something, to find anything that will dull the thirst. We drink anything that seems or tastes like water. Yet apart from Christ, everything we drink is salt water that will only dehydrate us it will only make us more thirsty and in the end it will only kill us c.s lewis called this hear this an ever increasing craving for an ever diminishing pleasure hear that an ever increasing craving so it keeps growing for an ever diminishing pleasure so the cravings grow and that which we can experience in it diminishes that is the essence of sin. But listen to the promise of Jesus. Look, look at verse 14. But whoever drinks, what a stipulation. You have to drink. You have to take Jesus in. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Listen. Write this down. Satisfaction for your soul and my soul will never come naturally. It must come supernaturally. You will never find natural satisfaction for your soul. It must be supernatural. While we stuff ourselves on what the world offers, money, success, sex, relationships, all kind of fleshly pleasures, possessions, entertainment the satisfaction they bring us are momentary at best and yet jesus comes and he offers us peace joy love and a relationship that is fulfilling and a relationship that will last praise god forever forever jesus alone satisfies every need jesus alone quenches every single thirst jesus alone never disappoints he approaches us in our current state, and he offers to meet our greatest need. 
And what is our greatest need? It'd be easy right now to say water. But no, our greatest need is a Savior. And praise God, we have a Savior who gives to us living water. This is the beauty of the Savior that we have. One hot afternoon, some 2,000 years ago, Jesus met a spiritually thirsty woman. This woman wasn't looking for Jesus, but praise be to God, he was looking for her. He had an appointment with her. Jesus went out of his way to seek out this poor, lonely, empty, broken down woman at a well. And he said to her in verse 10, if you knew the gift, meaning it's a gift. If you knew the gift of God, if you knew the gift of God, and if you knew who was offering it to you, we have, Jesus is the gift of God. We have the gift being offered to us if you knew it. You would drink of him. You would have living water in him. And what it comes down to is ultimately this woman was lonely for God. She thought she was lonely for relationships. She thought she was lonely for companionship. She thought she was lonely to matter and to mean something to others. And ultimately she couldn't find what she was looking for. She needed God. And praise be to God, he came near. He came near Lord, if we have been drinking from other wells, bring us to that place where we want nothing less and settle for nothing less than the living water, God, that only you can give to us. God, show us that we must stop drinking from the wells of this world, for they can't satisfy. There is water that quenches every thirst. Secondly, and this is going to get a little awkward for a little bit. Secondly, there is a Messiah that exposes every sin. There's a Messiah that exposes every sin. Now look at verse 16. Jesus said, you'll see on the screen, go call your husband and come here. Verse 17, the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. Ouch. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Again, we don't know her name, but we now know her reputation. We now know what her reputation was. After a string of five failed marriages, she has now resorted to shacking up with a nameless, faceless, graceless individual who is willing to treat her like a wife, but he's not willing to give her even the benefit of an offer to be his wife. He sees her the way everyone else in this city sees her. Nothing, nothing less than, nothing more than to just be used and thrown away. And yet Jesus saw her as a woman who he had an appointment with to come in order to offer her what she needed and would sustain her forever. And Jesus reveals her sin. And in revealing her sin, Jesus puts his finger on the dirtiest and the most scarred portion of her soul. This portion, it stinks and it smells like sin and death and hell. And he puts his finger on this portion, exposing her sin, not to shame her, but to heal her, to cleanse her. 
to forgive her, to give her refreshment and satisfaction, showing her, and praise be to God, showing us that there is no one too awful, there is no one too sinful, there is no one too low, there is no one too marginalized, that Jesus' love can't reach them in the midst of their shame, in the midst of their thirst, in the midst of their failures, because that's where his love reaches us, and his love is able to reach as far as our sin goes. Praise be to God where our sin increases. His grace extends all the more. Someone has said the love of God is like the Amazon River. It flows down to what are one daisy. You see, everyone in Samaria saw this woman like a weed. And yet Jesus saw her as a flower. Jesus saw her as a precious flower. And don't miss that at the moment that Jesus began to expose her sin, she immediately changes the subject. Look at verse 19. Listen to what happens here. Verse 19 through 26, it says, The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. There there is no higher calling. There is no greater activity than worship. But we have to understand that worship is not an event. Worship affects our whole lives. It's not an event that we attend. It's something that we give our lives to. And the point that Jesus is making here is worship is not about the where. Jews thought it was about Jerusalem. Samaritans thought it was about Mount Gerizim. And what Jesus is saying is not about the where. It's about, first of all, the who. We have to worship him, but also it's about the how. We must worship him in spirit and truth. We have to worship him in spirit, not with our emotions, seeking some emotional thing from him. No, we yield our spirit to the Holy Spirit, and we're able to truly engage in the worship that God has ordained, and we worship him in truth. Now, we live in this age where everybody gets to speak their truth, and your truth is your truth, and this and that and something else. There is such thing as truth, and there is such thing as lies, and this word says God is truth. Therefore, we have to worship God according to God's provision, according to God's guidelines. We don't get to tell God who he is. God tells us who he is, and he tells us who we are. And we come to him, and we worship him in spirit, and we worship him in truth. And God really wants, and God is really seeking out worshipers, which helps us answer the question of verse 4. Why did Jesus need to go through Samaria? And the reason is he needed to go through Samaria in order to turn an empty, lost woman into a found worshiper. To turn her into a worshiper. That the Father would seek worship 
from those who were formerly spiritually dead. Even his enemies is a cause for praise and worship in and of itself. That God would take unholy people, would save us, and would allow us to worship him, the holy God, is an incredible thought that should elicit endless gratitude and praise in our hearts. Tenderly, the word that Jesus uses here for worship is the word it literally means to kiss toward. To kiss toward. Jesus had just presented himself as the answer to everything this woman had been looking for in one sinful relationship after another sinful relationship after another that did not and would not ever fulfill her. And then this woman, being stunned by this conversation, says, I'm just waiting for the Messiah to come so I can ask him these questions. And Jesus says, I am. I am. Meaning, don't miss this, only two times in the Gospel of John does Jesus confess to be the Messiah. One here and one during his trial. But the first time all throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus declaring himself to be the Messiah was to this sinful, lost, empty individual. And through this confession of Jesus, an eternal relationship begins. And don't miss the point here. There is a Messiah that exposes every sin. Yes, he will expose your sin and he will expose my every sin. But he does so in order to make us worshipers of him. He changes our allegiance. He changes our affections and we become his and he is ours. So there is water that quenches every thirst. There is a Messiah that exposes every sin. And then third, lastly, there is a mission that extends to every person. There's a mission that extends to every person. Look with me now at verse 28. We're going to read a few verses here. It says this, follow with me. So the woman left her water jar and went away. Time out. She came at noon seeking water. Now she's leaving her water jar. Why? Two reasons. Number one, she's coming back. She, she found the best gift she could ever have. She's coming back for that gift. And it's not the water pot, it's Jesus. And the beautiful thing is, secondly, she's leaving the water pot because she has found living water. She's found that. She's been looking for her entire life. So she left it and went away into town. And said to the people, verse 29, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? So the disciples are going, Man, like, did Jesus call Uber Eats? Like, did, did Domino's deliver a pizza while we were gone? Like, what in the world happened? Like, we went to get him food. Now he's not hungry. Who brought him food? Verse 34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. 
Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows, another reaps. I send you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Hear this. And many more believed because of his word. They came to him. They believed in him because of the word of this testimony. I was reading a commentator this week that said, and I don't know if it's tradition, I don't know what it is, but said that when Samaritans would travel, they would wrap themselves in, in white cloth over their, their head. And the thought was that when Jesus told the disciples in verse 35 to lift up their eyes and see the fields are white for harvest, what they, the disciples probably saw in that moment were the hordes of Samaritans wrapped in white coming to Jesus through the testimony of this woman saying, come and see the one who told me everything. And don't miss the point. She isn't just saying he knows every dirty thing I've ever done. She's saying, and he loves me. Come see that one. For you see, brothers and sisters, we can identify with this woman. We were outsiders before we were insiders. We were thirsty, trying everything to satisfy our thirst. We were blind, unable to see Jesus for who he is. We were immoral, needing forgiveness and deep change in our hearts. We weren't true worshipers. Now, we worship something because we all worship something, but we weren't worshiping him in spirit and in truth. And yet, we met the Messiah. He saved us, and now he has left us to tell the world. But don't miss this. Please finish strong with me here. Unlike us, this woman immediately took on the mission of Jesus into her community. She went and told others. She wanted others to come to know the one who she had just met. For you see, brothers and sisters, we have the greatest message the world has ever known, and yet we're not delivering it. One evangelistic organization recently said that 95% of all church-going church -going Americans have never led another person to the Lord. 95% of church-going Americans have never led another person to Jesus. Why? Why? Is it because we drank from Jesus and we found him not enough? Or is it because we drank from Jesus and now we're drinking from everything the world is is drinking from? Here's the deal, brother. Think about this, brothers and sisters. 95% of, of church people, they have no problems talking to other people about their politics. They have no problems talking to people about their sports. They have no problems talking to people about and showing them all their Facebook posts and all their family pictures. They have no problems doing that, but they refuse to tell others about Jesus. Why? Maybe because those 95% have stopped somewhere along the way, stopped drinking in faith and the grace that Jesus alone can give. And those 95% are just as thirsty as this woman at the well was at the beginning of her story. Because that's what happens, brothers and sisters. When we stop drinking of Jesus, we thirst again. 
When we stop taking him in, we become thirsty again, and we're going to find something to fill the thirst. And if it's not Jesus, we'll go back to drinking what the world drinks. And when we go back to drinking what the world drinks, guess what? We take on the world's message. Oh, to God, I want to challenge each one of us today, right now where we are, to seek, to pray, to ask God to give you a renewed experience with him that will lead you to tell others about him because here's what i know if you have a fresh new real encounter with jesus you're going to want to tell somebody you're going to want to tell somebody you're going to tell somebody what he's done for you you're going to tell somebody how he transformed your life you're going to you're going to to tell somebody that jesus took something that was broken and he put it back together in a way that brings him glory we need a transforming experience which means we need to drink again and again and again of Christ so that we might proclaim a transforming message. That we see him. We become like him. Let me end this way. It's going to be a little different, but just follow with me here. James Birchner wrote a famous book called The Source in which he tells of a man by the name of Ur Bell who lived in 20, or excuse me, uh, 2200 B.C., the 2200 B.C., and he was a farmer, and Urbel worshipped two gods, the god of death and the god of fertility, which was, of course, a common practice. As he was out one day plowing his field, one of the priests of the temple came to him and said, If you want your crops to grow, you must sacrifice your only son, which was also a common practice. So on the appointed day, he brought his little boy and his wife to the temple, and he offered his son to the priest the priest plunged a knife into his boy and then engulfed him in flames to appease the gods and give them good crops. Then the priest announced to Urbel and to the other men who had also brought their children for sacrifice that one of them would be chosen to spend the next day with the, the new next week, excuse me, with the, the new temple prostitute, which was also a common way to worship the goddess of fertility. Urbel's wife looked at her husband and was stunned when she saw an intense desire come over him like she had never seen before. And then the priest called his name, Urbel, and he almost lunged forward toward that prostitute to spend the week with her in that temple. So Mishnah writes, picture this scene. This woman leaves the temple alone, not with her son. He's dead not with her husband. He's now with a prostitute. And she says, if only he had different gods, he would have become a different man. If only he had different gods, he would have become a different man. Brothers and sisters, we become like the gods we worship. If you worship gods who are false, you will become false. If you worship the God who is living and true, you will have life and have truthfulness in you. You will understand the reality of who God is. If he would have had different gods, he would have become a different person. Let me end in closing by telling you the God that we have. At the end of John, John's gospel, John 19, verse 28, the Bible says, while on the cross, Jesus said, I thirst. And then he said, it is finished. And he died. For you see, Jesus on the cross changed place with thirsty humanity. He died for 
us. He took the wrath of God. That moment, he was cut off from the Father. He experienced a judgment far worse than dehydration and physical torture. Yet he was lifted up so that we might drink from the well of salvation. He became thirsty, hear this, so that you and I might never thirst again. Oh, to God that we would understand the kind of God that we have, who we have in him. Let me just close today with the words of John Newton. Of course, he wrote the great hymn, Amazing Grace. And at the end of his life, he summed up the message of Christianity so perfectly. And I, when I read these words, I was like, this is the woman. That, well, this is her testimony. And this is my testimony. He says this, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things. One, I'm a great sinner. And two, Christ is a great savior. Brothers and sisters, we are great sinners. We are great sinners. But praise be to God, we have a greater Savior. We have a great Savior. Oh, do you know him today? Oh, that you would draw near to him today. If you don't know him today, drink from him for the first time. Come to him in faith. If you, if you do know him and yet you're running on empty today, drink of him again. Come to know him again. We're going to pray, and I'm going to, normally I stand up here, but we, me not feeling well, I don't want to distract by any way whatsoever. I'm going to ask Pastor Jordan and Brother Curtis to come down. And if God is dealing in your heart in any way, you need prayer, you need to come to the altar, it is it's open. May we be a people today thirsty for the only thing that can satisfy. I'm going to ask you to stand. Call the band forward, and let's pray together. Father, we come before you, Jesus you are our source of hope, our source of life, giving us, Lord, what nothing else can give us. Lord, we pray in this moment, Lord, that you would work in the hearts and lives of people. If anyone, under the sound of my voice, anyone listening at home, God, if, if they don't know you today, may today be a day, Jesus, of drinking of you in faith for the first time. Unto salvation. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But also, Lord, I believe with all my heart that there are so many Christians. God, we are running on, on empty. Lord, we're thirsty. We hear a message like this and we identify the fact that we're not satisfied. We're not refreshed. And the reason is, God, we've stopped drinking from you, Jesus. Help us again today to turn to you, to drink from you again and again and again and again. Just finish this time. In Jesus' name, amen.